0: Hello everyone, this is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart Podcast. Our show today is devoted to identifying and understanding our blind spots, those unconscious patterns of behavior that we don't often recognize in ourselves, but that others surely see, personality traits that have the potential to sabotage our leadership effectiveness, and even our careers. So I'd like to begin with a quick story. Several years ago, a longtime employee of mine came up to me and said, are you open to hearing some criticism about your performance as a leader? (laughs) And as you might imagine, just her question alone made me wince. And I braced myself for the even greater pain that was to follow. You can come across as really sarcastic at times, she told me very directly, and I don't even think you're aware of it. As I gulped and let her feedback seep in, the truth she was speaking caught me by complete surprise. I had absolutely no idea I was being sarcastic, and it was an incredibly distressing thing for me to hear that I'd been unwittingly hurting my team while also harming my own reputation as a manager. And in an instant, I started thinking about, what are the reasons? Why am I being sarcastic? What's motivating this? And I committed myself to not only figuring it out, but to making sure I'd stop. But I also had the presence of mind to thank my friend and employee for insisting I had a toxic behavior that needed to go before it seriously damaged all of my relationships. Truth is, many of us aren't that lucky to have somebody who's willing to confide in us that way. So as we start the episode of the podcast, let me begin by asking you an important question. Is it possible that you might have your own pattern of behavior that weakens your leadership effectiveness or worse, holds you back from getting the promotions and career opportunities you desire? Since we're human, all of us, it's pretty likely that you're doing at least one thing that undermines your true greatness as a manager, particularly under stress, I might add. And the focus for today's show is on how you can both discover what your derailers might be and how to lessen their negative impacts. So to tackle this, I'm joined on the show by an absolute expert on the topic, Dr. David Doklick. David has had a stunning and remarkable career that I'm excited to tap into for the next hour. And as I tell you a little bit about his background, I'm going to leave out more than I include. He's been named one of the top 50 coaches in America, and you'll understand why in just a moment. And also is the co-author of 12 best-selling books, including the one we're about to discuss today, called Why CEOs Fail, the 11 Behaviors that Can Derail Your Climb to the Top and How to Manage Them. Today, he's president of Pivot Leadership, a consulting firm he started and later sold to Corn Ferry. He advises CEOs and corporate boards, and his list of clients includes Walmart, Nike, Johnson & Johnson, Aetna, Microsoft, and Best Buy. And amongst his many prestigious former roles, David founded and sold two large companies, was an executive vice president at Honeywell, the president of Mercer Delta Consulting, and a professor at the University of Minnesota Business School, where he earned his master's and PhD. I am very delighted to have you on the show. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. David Dotlick. Thanks, Mark. It's an honor to be here. Well, I'm thrilled that you're here, and you've taught and coached thousands of senior leaders over the years, and so I'd like to get us started by asking, how did you discover that most of us have the potential for some self-sabotage in a way that we act and behave?
1: Well, you know, Mark, it wasn't hard. If you go back to the Greek tragedies or to Shakespeare or to great literature, you know, Dickens, things we read in high school, college... You know, the idea that human beings do dumb things is not a new one. It's been around for a long time. And, you know, the fact that we as humans are impulsive and moody and can do things that aren't always in our best interest is an idea that, you know, in fiction, great writers have toyed with for a long time. And when you think about leadership, particularly in large organizations, the higher you go or the more people you lead or the more significant the role, you know, the more the impact of those things that you don't intend can have on other people. So you know, just in watching leaders who you know, ultimately behave as human beings do dumb things over time, it became clear to me that you know, we're all human and we all do things of which we're not proud. But as leaders, it has a, it has a major impact on others. So that was the question, you know, how can leaders become more aware of the things that we do that get in our own way? And that's why it's called a derailer. You know, it derails our career or derails our objective.
0: Well, I love the word. And in your book, you write, and I'm going to quote you, that failures aren't the result of insufficient intelligence. Generally, they happen when smart and well-intentioned managers act in illogical, idiosyncratic, in irrational ways, kind of just like you've just described. Right. And so you outline 11 different derailers, and I think it's probably a good idea to introduce those to the audience so that they know what they all are. So can you just give us a quick high-level summary of your key 11 derailers? Yeah, and these derailers
1: are the flip side of strengths, people's leadership strengths. And a lot of this uh, original research was done by Robert Hogan, Uh, at the University of Oklahoma years ago. And uh, we then extended his research to look at how it impacts CEOs and senior executives. But the 11 are arrogance, which is the flip side of confidence, being bold is a leadership strength, but a derailer is taking that too far and becoming arrogant. Melodrama is this tendency to kind of grab the center of attention and always be noticed, which is sort of the flip side of charisma. You know, volatility, which is, you know, mood swings, sometimes being excited, sometimes being depressed, or going off on people, losing your temper, having, you know, a temper tantrum, can often be, you know, the flip side of passion. The fourth one is what we call excessive caution, and that's worrying about things, which can, you know, be the flip side of sometimes being careful but some, you know, when you're a leader and you have excessive caution, sometimes you can't make a decision because you worry about things too much. The fifth one is what we call distrust or skepticism, and again, that's the flip side of being cautious or careful or managing risk well. The sixth is aloofness. You know, this is a leader who disengages or disconnects or is emotionally detached from what's going on around them at work can be very rational and logical, but can't always connect emotionally with people, especially when they need it. The seventh is mischievous, and that's this tendency to not follow the rules, to get in trouble, sometimes in a bureaucracy, sometimes in you know leading the government. Mischievous can be the flip side of being extremely creative and uh, innovative. The eighth is what we call eccentric, or being sort of unpredictable, or different, or odd. And, you know, in a leader, sometimes that's a wonderful quality, but can also make it hard to predict what they're going to do. The ninth is what we call passive resistance, and that's this tendency to kind of look like you're going along, but then privately have reservations. So this is a leader who sits in a meeting and agrees with everybody, and then goes back to their office and says, oh, you won't believe what they decided in that meeting, and lets everyone know they're not on board. And then the tenth mark is what we call perfectionism. And that's the leader who wants to get down into the details, especially when they're under stress. So, you know, is that paperclip clip on there right? Have we got this report stapled correctly? Is every single word spelled right and done right? You know, really excessive detail focus. And in the senior leader, you can imagine how that gets everybody spinning. And then the last one is what we call the pleaser or this willingness to kind of go along with everybody, agree with whatever people suggest, You know, a person comes in their office, they agree. Then the next person comes in, they agree with them. And then pretty soon everybody wonders, well, you know, what is the leader's position? You know, what do they really believe? So those are the 11. And you can see that they're all related to strengths, but sometimes they're strengths taken to excess.
0: Yeah, I love that. I mean, I really appreciate the fact that you thought, and obviously this isn't the first time you've discussed these, but just in listening, you describe them. There is a corollary to each of these that are strengths, but any strength overplayed can be a weakness at time. And so that's really what you're describing is this overplayed hand.
1: Yeah. If you think of it in particularly in CEOs and senior leaders or even in presidents, you know, the last five presidents, no matter what's your political party. You know, we've seen evidence of these derailers, you know, leaders who are bold, you know, and maybe, you know, take us to war or leaders who are mischievous, you know, who get in trouble personally, you know, with interns, you know, or leaders who are aloof, you know, who don't necessarily connect with people emotionally and don't glad hand and engage in political behavior. So we see it in politics. We see it in business and, you know, people see it in their personal lives as well and, what I tell leaders is we are struggling human beings. We all have these derailers. Different ones appear in different forms. And the idea is not to deny them, but to manage them, You know, to become aware of them and then take steps to stay aware and become able to manage your derailers so they don't actually derail you.
0: I would really love to dig into all 11 of these, but obviously we don't have time to do that. And so I guess what I'd like to do is to ask Are there three or four of these that you think are just repeatedly found in leaders, and particularly at all levels. So I know you said they magnify as you're impacting more and more people. Sure. But I'm looking for the ones that you know, our audience can say, oh, man, I may have to deal with this. And if you think it's another derailer that is just so potently toxic, right. that everyone needs to be aware of, call that one out. And then what I'd like to do is kind of dig into those three, four or five that you call out.
1: Right. Well, the ones that I would say that we see the most frequently, particularly in senior executives, are arrogance, because it takes tremendous confidence to move up in an organization. And, you know, finding that balance between being confident and being arrogant. I would say mischievous, this tendency to kind of break the rules is often associated with innovation and creativity, starting new industries and new businesses. You've got to have that drive to be you know, to break the rules, but it can also be a huge flaw. I think, you know, we see leaders that are volatile quite a bit and the effect that that has on other people. And then I would say also perfectionism, you know, this tendency to kind of get into the details quite a bit. If you ask me for the most toxic one, I would say it's passive resistance. It's this looking like you're going along, but privately having some kind of deep reservations. And, you know, what that does is you know, create in organizations a lack of commitment.
0: You call that passive resistance. Is that also passive aggressiveness? Is that another synonym? It is. Yeah, it's the same.
1: Yeah, passive aggressive, passive resistance. Yeah.
0: Okay. I've definitely experienced that one. And I don't know that I would have picked it. And I tried to anticipate what you might pick. And the passive aggressiveness is something I definitely thought you'd pick. And I was certain you'd pick arrogance. The other three, not so much. Yeah. So why don't we take them one at a time? Sure. And the first question I have for you with respect to arrogance is, how does it play out? How does it play out in the workplace? Well, you know, leaders have trouble getting good feedback
1: in a hierarchy in general. Because, you know, you have control and sometimes you influence people's careers and success and, you know, promotions. So it's not unusual if you're a leader in a company, even a small company or big company, to not always get good feedback. You know, and I often say to leaders, have you noticed as you move up how your jokes get funnier, you know, your ideas get smarter, you know, your insights get brighter, you know, the reason is because in a hierarchy, people don't always give it to you straight the way you need it. And, you know, if you're an arrogant leader, the way it plays out is that, you know, people will not even try because you're convinced you're right. And pretty soon people figure, well, you know, why why should I give her feedback? You know, she's not going to listen because she thinks she's right. So, you know, the way it plays out is that leaders become kind of removed or disconnected, from the impact of their behavior on others, and that can impact the performance of the whole organization as well as the individual leader. So arrogance, it relates to the difficulty of getting good information, getting counter ideas, finding the best solution because people are willing to disagree with you and debate. So if you're an arrogant leader and you notice that everybody always agrees with you all the time, it could be because they're afraid to tell you. You know, here's what's going
0: on. What about the birth of arrogance? I'm thinking about, you know, the audience thinking, who's going to be able to self-identify arrogance, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Am I going to yeah. willingly go, yeah, that's me. So let's start there. Well, one of the ways,
1: you know, is, you know, none of us like to admit, you know, we're wrong, you know, or we've made a mistake. I mean, it's not easy to do that for anybody, particularly when you're a, you know, a leader and people expect you to be confident. We don't want the leader to show up every day and say, you know, I don't know what to do. I've never seen this before. I'm really lost. We really want confidence in leadership. But on the other hand, you know, there are times when leaders need to admit that we're vulnerable or we've made a mistake. And if you know you're a leader who always has to be right, you know, or always has to have the last word, you know, or has to be the person who everybody, you know, in the end has to agree with, chances are you're probably, others see you as arrogant. And a lot of people have the mistaken idea that if I'm a leader, You know, I should never admit to weakness, you know, or I should never admit to a flaw, you know, or I should never admit that I'm wrong, and people will then think I'm too weak to actually have confidence in me. And I think you can see, you know, that's often arrogance masking insecurity. So often, you know, when we see that leaders are arrogant, it's because they're unwilling to admit that they make a mistake. So, you know, what we say, you know, how to coach an arrogant leader is to practice saying, you know, I'm wrong you know i don't know you know i've made a mistake you know and things that don't come easy to leaders that really want to appear confident in every situation
0: talk about insecurity so if that's the underlying motivator of arrogance is this childhood born where do we cultivate that
1: well you know that's a complex question of where does insecurity come from i think we're all insecure at some level you know can any of us feel like in every situation, under all circumstances, we're completely confident and free of anxiety, I would say no. You know, insecurity and anxiety are part of life. As a leader, it's important that you have the ability to say, I don't know, because what that does is it gives others the opportunity to learn. You know, if the leader always is right and knows all the answers, you know, can't be corrected... The impact is that it diminishes everyone else's ability to learn. If a leader says, I don't know, what they're really saying is, let's learn together. Let's figure it out. So sometimes if you're insecure and always saying, I don't know, or I don't know what to do, that's not good. But if you're generally confident, but you have moments when you're willing to admit a mistake or you're willing to let others see that, you know, you're not in complete control, particularly in a world that's increasingly volatile and and disruptive, you know, I think creating the environment where people can learn by saying, I don't know, is important. Arrogant leaders have trouble doing that.
0: You know, I just read something recently, like yesterday, about the emergence of humility as being a much more effective way of displaying oneself. Correct. And is it true as a CEO? In other words, do I need to be on the other side of the median of the fulcrum as a CEO? Or is humility just as effective at that level?
1: Well, you know, there have been a lot of studies on, you know, Collins wrote about the level five leader years ago, of which humility was one of the characteristics of what he called the level five leader. Certainly in the Eastern, in Asian, Eastern countries, humility sometimes is more valued in Confucian culture than in Western societies. But, you know, what we're finding now in our own research about leadership is that the capacity to be humble at times, to not always be confident, it brings out the best in other people. And so does this willingness to listen. You know, if you haven't read this book called The CEO Next Door, which is based on, you know, an in-depth study of CEO behavior. We had Kim Powell on the show. Oh, did you? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the conclusions of that study is that sometimes introverted leaders who listen and, you know, allow others to talk and be themselves, which is part of humility, I think, you know, create an environment for more innovation.
0: Let's take mischievous, number two.
1: Well, mischievous is, you know, people that have changed industries, entrepreneurs are, you know, extremely mischievous. This is my own derailer. You know, it's this tendency to find a way around issues and problems in a creative way. You know, the way it's taken to extreme, Mark, is that, you know, a mischievous leader Doesn't always believe, particularly under stress, that these rules quite apply to me. So let's let's just break them. So you know, in a bureaucracy, it can be things like you know, sitting in a meeting, for example. And I do this sometimes, you know, and getting bored. Boredom is uh, you know one of the stressors. You know, when we're bored, sometimes is when our derailers come out. You know, in a mischievous person in a meeting, that's and when he or she is bored you know, might say something just to kind of stir it up, you know, to create some controversy or some debate or discussion. You know, that's a minor expression of mischievous, but you know, in a bigger way, it can be not following the rules. You know, it can be deciding, you know, that, you know, your own impulsive behavior, you want to act out. You know, or it can be, you know, not completing your expense reports, or it can be, you know, not following procedures because you think you've got a better way or a more creative way. And, you know, you can see that this has a a bright side and a dark side to it. You know, you can be very creative, come up with new marketing ideas or new ways to relate to customers or changing the way we do things and disrupting. A lot of times that's what mischievous leaders do. But on the other hand, you know, people expect the leader to be willing to follow procedures. And, you know, if the leader takes it too far, then everybody gets caught up in the mischievous behavior and sometimes, you know, dire consequences. And again, looking at presidents, you know, if you're mischievous as a president, you can be very creative, but, you know, if you, you know, have relationships that are inappropriate, all of a sudden you've got the whole country debating, you know, what's appropriate. So mischievousness, you know, we see it a lot and it's a huge strength and it's a huge weakness.
0: I had a client that I worked with who he was in charge of marketing for a very large organization and he was creative beyond belief and very successful as a result of that. And he sort of took a sense of pride in being reckless. And that recklessness said, what about this? Why aren't we doing it this way? This is totally different, which is creative and innovative. But in interpersonal relationships, I'm not so certain that he knew how to turn it off. Right. And... So how do you get into your own head and sort of turn the dial in this moment, this recklessness or this mischievous needs to be tamped down in a very significant way? Because this isn't the right moment for it. How do you go toggle back and forth?
1: Well, some of that you learn through experience, through just being in situations where you get in trouble. Either, you know, the team doesn't respect what you're doing or like your input or the meeting goes off because you've derailed it, derailed the meeting. You you learn through experience by watching the impact of what you do. Sometimes you learn it through feedback from other people. You know, they say to you things like this is not helping or, you know, you don't get to the goal that you really have in mind because you've created unpredictable, disruptive behavior in other people I mean all these things can be part of it and you know sometimes it's you know I know a lot of mischievous leaders that have gotten fired you know or they've not gotten promoted Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know or they've gotten some feedback from other people that they're just too unpredictable and it's over time becoming aware of those situations where you behave in a mischievous way for example for me you know I mentioned this is one of my own derailers you know, one of the things that I've learned over time, emails can be fraught with, you know, potential penalty. If you think you're making a joke in an email out of context, you know, the person receiving it may not see it, you know, the way you intended it.
0: Especially today.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, or meetings. I've also learned to manage my own mischievousness in meetings by saying to myself, you know, hey, look, just because I'm bored, doesn't necessarily mean I have to disrupt this meeting for everybody else. I was with a colleague the other day and we were driving to an all-day meeting and, you know, she was driving, we parked the car. You know, she parked the car underneath a big sign that said, limit two hours. You know, we're going to an all-day meeting. And I said, you know, do you see the sign It says two hours? you think it's okay to park here? She said, ah, this is, you know, this is not a real ticket. You know, the police give you a real ticket. This is a corporate ticket, so it doesn't really matter. That's mischievous behavior. You know, the rules in that situation just don't quite apply to her. You know, she's thinking, well, you know, I'm special, you know, so that's what mischievous behavior looks like.
0: Well, I mean, you had an example of, you know, similar to that in your book. I'm really glad you mentioned it because I'm just going to assume that your observation of her was a little critical. I mean, in other words, you're kind of observing a quality in her that is unappealing, unprofessional, and revealing, right? So people see these behaviors in us that we don't often see in ourselves.
1: Well, most of the time, you know, I really appreciate how creative and interesting and dynamic she can be. And, you know, she's really, you know, an excellent marketer and has a lot of really good qualities, which lead her to be very successful, but it's the unconsciousness associated with mischievous behavior that can get in her way and you know for me i'm mischievous so i appreciate it but let's say my derailer was excessive caution i really worry about things a lot or think them through and i end up working for a boss who's very mischievous and she's always encouraging me to break the rules you know how is that going to stress me out you know how is that going to make you know life difficult for me if my derailer, my you know personality is carefulness, and she's telling me, you know, break the rules. So that's you know how these derailers often show up at work.
0: That's very insightful. Let's move to volatile. Yeah, I guess I'm kind of surprised that this is on the list. Not that I haven't worked for volatile people. I just don't understand how they get to the top of organizations when they have this quality.
1: Well, you know, you're thinking about the person who rips the phone, you know, off the wall or throws their cell phone or, you know, extreme temper tantrums. And we've certainly seen that at work. But have you ever had a boss who, you know, comes to work and, you know, one day is very enthused about a project or an idea, and then a week later... They're depressed. They think it's not going to work. And they completely do a 180 on their own idea or the idea of somebody else. Or, you know, they're all excited about something. And then, you know, later they've completely reversed themselves and, you know, their mood has swung. Or even in the morning, you know, they can be happy. And in the afternoon, they can be, you know, totally cranky. So, you know, we all have mood swings. That's not the issue, it's these excessive swings. That make you unpredictable, and people don't know which side of Jekyll and Hyde is going to show up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I had a boss one time uh, years ago in a corporation who was volatile, and he would have mood swings. And you know, we would ask his assistant, you know, what's the weather report, and she would say, you know, sunny, you know, and then we, you know, we would all rush in with budget requests, you know, or she'd say cloudy, you know, or thunderstorms. And it was her way of signaling, you know, that this, this <laughs> particular leader, you know, had huge mood swings. And so, you know, volatility in a CEO or a senior leader combined with power can create intimidation, you know, where you've got, you know, what you think is just expressing your temper or expressing your viewpoint. When you're the boss and you're going off on people in unintended ways, the recipient of that can often feel intimidated or in the worst case, bullied by the boss. So that's why it's very important to be aware of how you're coming across if you're volatile.
0: What's the inner motivation of somebody who's volatile? You know, I think they can't
1: control it. I mean, you know, a lot of these things are hardwired. And, um, you know, we could debate, you know, does it come from your childhood and the way you were treated, or does it come from, you know, maybe a genetic side of personality? You know, if you have children and you see differences in personality that show up fairly early, after, you know, thinking about this a lot, much more in the camp of a lot of this stuff is hardwired versus how we've been socialized. But nobody really enjoys, I think, being volatile and hurting other people. You know, typically it's behavior that is often not under control.
0: How can you mitigate it then?
1: Well, you know, we coach people and advise people. Watch the signals, you know, when you're going into overdrive or, you know, your passion is coming up or you feel a rant coming on, take a break, go for a walk, you know, get trusted people around you who can pull you aside and say, you know, you're doing it, you know, stop yourself in the middle of a conversation and apologize. But the biggest thing is if you take these derailers, you understand yourself in your calmer moments, admit to them tell people, look, I'm volatile, I know that, and I might even at times go off on you or in a meeting or, you know, in the department, and um, we really want to, you know, set up some kind of a signal or let you know that it's okay to, you know, interrupt me or whatever. You know, give people permission when you're being sane, so that when you're going insane, they can help you.
0: (laughs) That's that's a very, you know, Rube Goldberg way of getting there. (laughs) You know, but I'll I'll take it. All right, let's talk about
1: the, uh, the perfectionist. Well, you know, if you've ever worked for a boss that's a perfectionist, you know that you really can't ever fully please them, you know, because there's always some detail that they're going to micromanage. At the higher level, what this means is that they're often missing the strategy and the overall direction to focus in on the details. And, you know, given the pace of change today and the volatility of the world, You know, and how you've got to look for patterns much more than categories and kind of perfect details. You're kind of trying to figure out, you know, what's the pattern here that we need to discover? If you're spending too much time in the weeds, you know, or looking at the details, you're kind of missing the big patterns. You're looking at the notes and not reading the music. And so the boss is perfectionistic. They can be spending time and focus on things they feel they can control that are important. And meanwhile, they're missing out on some of the bigger questions that need to be addressed. And, you know, if you work for a detail-oriented boss, obviously the strength of that is that in certain professions like accounting or brain surgery, you really want things done to a nth level of perfection. But for most of us, you know, the perfectionistic boss creates a lot of excessive work and energy focused on getting everything right. Right. You know, knowing the answers and being completely, you know, on top of everything all the time. And, you know, what that does is create busy work a lot of the time.
0: Again, what's the motivation of somebody who has, particularly as you get more senior, what's driving a need to be that perfectionistic?
1: I think it's really anxiety management. You know, I think it's this feeling that if you get everything right, you know, you're less anxious. And particularly in leaders, you know, that I've worked with and seen and observed a lot. You know, perfectionism often It's closely associated with anxiety and this idea that if you can control all the details, you know, you're less anxious. And usually, you know, that's behind perfectionism.
0: Toxic, passive resistance.
1: Yeah, well, you know, Mark, to me, this is the most significant derailer. In organizations where you need people's passion and commitment and trust, organizations today run on these things that are much more important than they have been you know, a sense of purpose, people feeling that they can be open and transparent and trust. And, you know, if you're in a passive resistant organization where people have private agendas, you know, or the leader doesn't put all of his or her cards on the table, you know, that's really toxic for everybody else, you know, because if the leader isn't transparent, then, you know, everybody else ends up protecting themselves and their own turf. So to me, this is one of the the derailers that I think has the biggest cost in the way organizations and companies are run today, you know, what we need is energy and passion. And, you know, if we don't trust people showing up fully at work, they've got some private agenda, you know, pretty soon that spreads through the culture and everybody starts you know, having private agendas and we can't count on each other.
0: So is that how it works, like a domino? That's how it created in an organization? Yeah, particularly
1: at the top. If it starts at the top, it can affect the whole culture.
0: I mean, it's scary to think you can have an organization where your CEO or C-suite people are, for all intents and purposes, duplicitous. It's such a harmful and destructive trust destroyer. Yeah, and that's the extreme version. But, you know,
1: the behavior of the senior team has the... To me, that is one of the biggest factors influencing a culture of an organization is the behavior of the team at the top, or particularly the leader at the top, has a huge influence on the culture. And so you're always going to have some of these present in every culture, but you ask about the most toxic ones. I think it's those that diminish trust.
0: So what's the remedy? What's the way of really, truly lessening the, the blow of this one? (laughs)
1: Well, in coaching senior leaders, it's really engaging in conflict sometimes. It's being willing to put your cards more openly on the table or sometimes it's picking a fight or taking a stand or backing away from this belief that, you know, if you really are honest about how you feel or think, they won't do any good or, you know, people will reject you, which often is the thinking that underlies passive resistance.
0: Is it a thought process that says that I can't be honest because people will use it against me? It's more of a habit, you know, of not being fully open,
1: you know, or protecting your own kind of doubts that you have in the belief that you don't want to make waves or that it won't do any good or, you know, the train's already left, the decision's already made, or, you know, any number of logical conclusions that keep you from being fully honest. You know, there are times when it's important, maybe, or wise not to put all your cards on the table, but those are few and far Mm -hmm. between. More often, it's important to be authentic.
0: You've done just such a compelling job of really bringing these to life. And I want to transition now that we know what they are. Now we know which ones are the most widely seen in in workplaces. In the introduction, I had a woman who worked for me for many, many years who had established incredible trust with me and took it to me one day and just told me that I had a habit of being incredibly sarcastic with people and that it was harming my relationships with other people and then I needed to fix it. And I was so I mean, I was obviously very surprised by it, but I was so grateful to her Mm. for helping me that way, for having that courage. But that's not the way it goes. I mean, like you said, people get fired for exaggerated use of these derailers. And so I want to know, what's the advice you give people who are intrigued by this and going, I wonder if I'm arrogant, I wonder if I'm mischievous, I wonder if I'm volatile, I wonder if I'm a perfectionist. I mean, people have a sense of it, but how do they confirm it? What are you coaching people to do what are the behaviors that have the greatest impact in terms of generating truly honest feedback from people? Well,
1: let me answer the question in a different way, which is, you know, the most important thing today in the workplace is something that's called psychological safety. In you know, Google has done a lot of research on what are the characteristics of high-performing teams. And, you know, one of the dimensions of high-performing teams is this sense of psychological safety. You're safe to be yourself you know, you're safe to be honest, you know, you're safe to speak up, you know, you're safe to be innovative and creative and bringing all your ideas to work. So the behavior of the leader is a big factor in creating psychological safety for the team or the followers or those that work work for them. And, you know, by virtue of being in a hierarchy, you have a lot of influence and impact and sometimes even power over people's lives, as I mentioned, compensation, promotion, that by definition can reduce psychological safety because there's an imbalance of power. So a leader today has to really work hard to kind of create that sense of safety and, you know, overcome what might be people's inhibition sometimes to speak up. And, you know, in the extreme form, people not speaking up, not confronting the leader can have all kinds of consequences. You know, you might create a miscommunication or you might miss problems or customer issues, on and on and on. But as a leader, you know, creating psychological safety means giving people permission to tell you the truth as they see it. So the first thing is to ask for feedback. And when you get it, to thank people for it. And there are a lot of ways to do it. You know, one of the things I often suggest to leaders is to create a meeting space and ask people how I can be a better leader. You know, what can I do to be a better leader? And then, you know, ask them to answer that question together and leave the room while they're working on it, you know, and then come back, you know, after 30 minutes and and listen to them, you know, to their ideas. If it's a group, sometimes it's safer to speak as a group to give you that feedback. So ask them specifically, how can I be a better leader? And then when they tell
0: you. How does that play out? So, you know, I come back into that room. Are they honest? Obviously, you've given them time. You've given them permission to work together. So they kind of collaborate on it. But do they really give you what you need to hear between the ears?
1: Not always. Not always the first time. You know, you might ask them to, you know, just put ideas on a flip chart and talk to you about them. And, you know, it may not be between the ears the first time, but, you know, by the third or fourth time, if you do it and you thank them and you try to put it into practice and you reinforce it, you know, and you don't defend yourself with Mm -hmm. all kinds of excuses for why you're behaving the way you are, you know, over time, I think people will come to believe you really mean it. You know, he really wants to get better and he's really interested in feedback. You know, so that would be the first thing is, you know, if you want feedback, ask for it. When you get it, thank people for it, you know, that they're giving it to you. So that's asking for feedback. You know, the second thing is, as I mentioned, don't be afraid to show your own vulnerability. And so people will be more likely to open up to you if you're open with them. And, you know, selective vulnerability. When you made a mistake, you know, or when you don't know the answer, you know, or when you're wrong you know, or when you're uncertain. I mean, these are things that you can cop to. We're all human and we all have a human side of ourselves. So, you know, bringing that to work, I think, is extremely important. And then, you know, people want to know who you are as a human being in addition to the role that you play as a leader. So your humanity is important, I think, for people to connect with you. Your humanity is things you care about, the things that upset you, the things that you're passionate about, you know, what you're playing for, people want to know this about the leader. And so, you know, what's their purpose? What's what's their commitment, both to the company and to the role that they're in?
0: What's the most effective way of sharing that with people? So obviously, it's not work for me for five years and figure it out on your own by deduction. How do you recommend that a manager, let's say I'm taking over a new team, and I have a reputation in the organization, but people don't really know me. How do I share that kind of information?
1: You know, there are sometimes effective onboarding, which is letting people know what you know about yourself. Here's what my 360 has said about me as a leader that you're gonna probably experience as well. Now, here are the things that my supervisor has coached me consistently on you know, through the years. You know, these are the derailers that sometimes I engage in, that, you know, they're going to figure it out anyway, and they're going to talk about it with each other. So, you know, I advise people to be as transparent as possible as early as possible, and that, you know, people will figure that out. And, you know, if you're willing to acknowledge it, then they can give you feedback about it as well.
0: You have to have a lot of courage to do that, though.
1: I think it takes more courage and more effort to kind of keep it hidden, you know, particularly in organizations today, where people share information openly with each other, they've probably figured out your derailers already. And I've had leaders, many leaders, mark come back from workshops or coaching, and you know they decide to share it with their team. And you know sometimes the reaction is, I mean, that's really old news. Of course, we know that you're volatile. You yeah. know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we manage around that all the time.
0: That's just such a valuable insight. Because we think, I mean, in our little privacy, we think we're fooling people, but <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> it's not edit the case. You
1: know, it out. It's yeah. like children and parents. You know, exactly. you've, you've, you've got to study your parents to figure out where their weaknesses are. And people do that in organizations with leaders a lot.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, little children can figure it out pretty quickly. I want to transition us. Um, David, we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a break from the conversation. And I am absolutely thoroughly enjoying this conversation with you, by the way. And we ask our guests some quick answer questions. And this really relates to getting to know you a little bit better. Your personal philosophy sure. influences daily practices. And we call it the heartbeat round. So we want you to answer your questions in a heartbeat. But You have the honor of having the most unusual beginning to the heartbeat round because I thought with all of your knowledge and expertise, and kind of like what you did for the presidents a moment ago, I'm going to give you a list of well-known CEOs and ask you to identify what you think their most likely top derailer is. And then I have other heartbeat round questions for you. Okay. All right. right. You ready? All right. Okay. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg. Aloof. Elon Musk um
1: eccentric and arrogant uh
0: jeff bezos uh probably
1: perfectionistic Hmm. mark cuban from shark tank uh mischievous uh
0: satya nandela from microsoft
1: um you know that's a hard one i would say probably eccentricity ibm's gina rumetti uh don't know her haven't haven't worked with her
0: starbucks howard schultz uh mischievous tim cook apple uh perfectionistic And Sir Richard Branson.
1: Oh, God, mischievous, um, eccentric, um,
0: probably arrogant, too. Hmm. Yeah. Here are the rest of your heartbeat questions. The quality you most admire in other people. Um, Humility. Newspaper, magazine you never miss reading. Um, Economist. One skill that female managers often possess that male managers would be very wise to cultivate.
1: Uh, Sensitivity.
0: And one skill male managers often possess that female managers would be wise to cultivate? Uh, use of power. One book that had a profound influence on your life? Um, be Here Now. Ramdas? Yep. Skill improvement you're working on right now? Uh, memory. Remembering things.
1: <laughs> <laughs> sorry, what? Yeah. <laughs> that was the question.
0: <laughs> All time favorite movie? Uh, I'll tell you a movie
1: I saw last night, which is going to go into my top five list. It's called Roma. And uh, it won the Cannes Film Festival this year. And um, fabulous movie. So... I don't know if it's my all-time favorite, but don't miss it. It's just a great movie.
0: Fantastic. Appreciate it. It was just written up in the New York Times today, so I actually just heard about it for the first time. So thanks for the recommendation for all of us. I
1: just saw it at a
0: film festival,
1: and it's fabulous. It's fantastic. It's about Mexico City in the 1970s, and it's about memory, incidentally, all the the director's memories of the time. And it was just a beautiful movie.
0: Fantastic. Your best synonym for the word heart? Uh, Compassion. The leader from any time in history, male or female, you most admire? Easy, this is easy.
1: For me, having lived in South Africa, Nelson Mandela.
0: Mm. Besides love, what do you think the world needs more of? Um, Learning. And the lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in your life? Uh, It will all work out in the end. (sighs) (laughs) That's actually a very helpful piece of advice. Is it true? Is it true? It's taken me a long time to learn that. I'm still on this journey here, but that's good information, right? Yeah. The best coaching advice you can give to managers listening in? Oh, admit your
1: mistakes privately and publicly.
0: Fantastic. All right. You've done a pretty good job early on of giving us the corollary to these derailers, but I want to ask you, in the big picture, so moving away from derailers and really to what are the qualities that are truly, truly necessary to be a great leader today? What are these behaviors that, to use your language, keep leaders securely on the rails and excelling in their role? Um,
1: You know, Mark, what I tell leaders at all levels and people that I work with is remember that leadership is a privilege. You know, it really is a privilege. If you're in a leadership role, you're in a very privileged position to impact other people or the business or the world. So, you know, leadership is not a right, it's a privilege. And so, you know, it's really, it's given to you by others as opposed to, you know, handed to you by your boss, which is, You know, sort of the second thing I tell people to remember is that leadership is earned. It's not taken. People give you their followership. You know, they might respect the role or, you know, your authority, but they don't necessarily follow you as a leader. So you have to earn it. And so, you know, I used to work with a guy named Hugh McCall, who was the CEO of Nations Bank and then Bank of America. And Hugh used to say, you know, the interesting thing about being a leader is that you have to give your trust to others as a leader, but you have to earn their trust. And that's really true. You have to trust a lot of people that work for you and really practice and develop your trust a lot, particularly before they've earned it. But on the other hand, you have to earn their trust through your behavior and your follow through and your consistency. So, you know, remembering that leadership is earned and it's a privilege keeps you humble. And probably in a world that's changing so fast, allows you to stay, you know, on the learning curve, and plugged into what's happening. So those are the things I would say that mindset of, remember, it's a privilege and followership, you know, you got to you got to earn it.
0: How much trust do you think we have in organizations? In other words, how much trust do you think we consistently give to people in organizations?
1: Well, you know, I think people learn to look out for themselves. We've all had to learn that, you know, you can't really rely on the company as you maybe thought you could. But, you know, on the other hand, I see a lot of high-performing teams today, particularly in startups or teams with a mission, where they experience a lot of trust with each other. You know, they really do. And they enjoy trust. And, you know, to me, it is the one thing we all want at work is trust. You know, the trust of being with colleagues that you trust and, you know, enjoy, the trust that you can be yourself. You know, that's what we're all wanting at work. So creating that experience of trust is very important for a leader.
0: I want to pin you down on something you just said. Why can't we rely on our organizations? Well, I think... You said we've all learned it, but why is this something we needed to learn? Well, I think it's because,
1: particularly in public companies, the short term is often... You know, what becomes most important, you know, that organizations and leaders sometimes have to take action that is maybe not in the best interests of everybody. You know, I think it's a lot of companies get acquired or merge or downsize or, you know, all these things. And so it's wise to be willing, you know, and able to look out for yourself. That's what I meant by, you know, you've got to be responsible for yourself and your own career and your own performance. You can't look to the organization to take care of you. So on the other hand, you know, I think it's resulted in a lot of, you know, diminished trust in companies per se.
0: I mean, that's kind of what I wanted to dig into with you, because it seems that, you know, you're emphasizing that you have to earn people's trust. And yet businesses are willing to make short term decisions that directly compromise trust. And, you know, that's the paradox,
1: particularly for senior leaders, that you have to manage. You have to really behave as authentically and openly and transparently as you can, consistent with your own values. However, there are times you're going to have to take action that may result in people not liking it or not trusting you. And that's that's the way it is.
0: You think the short-termism is going to change at some point, or are we locked into this? Uh,
1: I don't see it. I don't see it changing soon. I think there may be... Um, You know, different models of funding and, you know, investment that might change the game or companies going private, you know, or family companies. You know, these are all different environments that people work that maybe aren't as short term as some public companies. But on the public company side, it's the shareholder that seems to have the final and the ultimate word today for better or worse.
0: David, we've covered a whole lot of ground here, and I I wish we could just keep going on for hours, particularly with you. I mean, honestly, it's like watching Tiger Woods play golf. You know, know I feel like I'm talking to somebody who's truly perfected and become a master. So I'm honored, Mark. Thank you. uh, I mean that. And and I'm sure that that's coming across to everyone who's listening in on this. So it would be a mistake for me not to call it out. Before we go, I'd like to ask if there's just something we haven't discussed. And frankly... You have a, a blank canvas, so anything that you want to mention, any final advice for our audience and how they can be more effectively discover and improve upon their own derailers or, again, just any last final pieces of advice from all of your years of coaching managers? Yeah, you know, it would be give yourself a break.
1: I think leaders often don't have issues or get in trouble because they're, they're not trying hard enough. It's often because they're trying too hard. You know, they keep striving to think they should be better or they should be perfect. Give yourself a break, accept your humanity, you know, and bring your whole self to work. If I had to net out, you know, how do we coach senior leaders? That would be the key message. And, you know, often as a coach, you know, one of the things that I can help people with is self-acceptance is a key part of being, you know, a good leader. Not to the point of arrogance, but just not being so hard on yourself that you then become hard on everybody else.
0: How did you learn to do that? Because that came to me very late in life, to be honest with you. It does. It's Yeah,
1: me too. Me too, Mark. I think the wisdom of experience maybe and living a long time It's that, you know, you ask me, what's the one thing I learned? It's all going to work out. I think that's part of the message is it's all going to work out. You know, relax a little, breathe a little into it and uh, a little bit more self-acceptance. Compassion towards yourself results in compassion towards others.
0: That's fantastic. Well, as I said, I'm extremely grateful for you joining me. And this has just been a wonderful discussion. And I wish you the best of success. Continued great success. Not that you need much (laughs) encouragement from me. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thank you very much. Best to you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, I just love speaking with truly brilliant people like David. And I hope that you had as much fun and joy as a listener as I did as the host. Before we go, I'd like to thank you all for subscribing to our podcast and for thoughtfully introducing us to your friends and colleagues. Your support is so, so greatly appreciated. And as a reminder, in between our podcast episodes, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and I hope you join me on all of them. And as always, I want to thank my Seattle-based team, producer and sound engineer Eric Oz and webmaster Randy Yant. And I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. Until next time, this is Mark C. Crowley, signing off for now.